0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Nearly $32 million from the American Rescue Plan has been tagged for underserved communities to expand COVID-19 response and vaccine access. Hawaii Island's Bay Clinic is one of 14 Hawaii community health centers to receive the funding that kicked in April 1st. Dr. Kimo Alameda sat down with The Conversation's Lillian Song to talk about how it's handling vaccinations for rural patients.
1: Bay Clinic Health Center, we serve over 21,000 patients and mostly, you know, our demographic is mostly Medicaid, the uninsured and we also provide about 12% of our services are to commercial patients. So we do serve everybody um, but it's in serving the most vulnerable. And we have 10 clinics, one mobile unit and that mobile unit is pretty much a clinic on wheels. Uh, we also have a patient shuttle and we're a one-stop shop. People don't really know that. I think we're the best-kept secret in East Hawaii, you know, we provide dental pharmacy, we provide behavioral health, we have a tobacco sensation, we're one of the few federal qualified health centers who also work with Department of Health to provide the WIC program for women and children, and so we're kind of like a one-stop shop.
2: What was it like this past year when COVID-19 was ramping up?
1: It was scary, you know, March 6th is what I remember, the first positive, and boy, you know, that got us uh, very scared. And likewise, the community was scared. It kept a lot of our patients at home. Nobody was coming to the clinics. American Dental Association put a recommendation out for no dental procedures, only emergency. You know, that caused us to lay off or put on furlough many employees. Um, But then, you know, government kind of kicked in. We had to change our protocols. We changed sanitization protocols. We spent money on UVC lighting to kill all the airborne pathogens. So we have to take a lot of precautions, and then slowly the confidence in our clinics by the public started to come back, patients started to come back, and then we hired everybody back, and now we actually, you know, with with the government's help, and being a federally qualified health center is kind of an advantage because, you know, we get our direct communication to the federal government. Uh, We also work with the state and the county, but we do have grants and such to help us mobilize our centers uh, so we get to act a little bit faster than the other health entities that does not have that federal connection and so so we went from being first in shock then you know fear and then you know everybody started rallying together so that sense of hope brought people together my staff certainly got closer and now we're on all cylinders and now it's a very exciting time so we feel very hopeful and my staff uh, is just super excited about being able to help uh, in places that other health entities cannot When my team sat down, we looked at the health landscape and we started to realize that the hospitals are very good at helping, you know, provide mass vaccinations at, you know, the tennis stadium or the Hilo Civic. And that's great for the general population. But then we started to notice that there are pockets of the community that lack transportation. There are segments of the population that they don't know how to use the Internet or better yet, they don't even have access to the internet. And we started to look at these these gaps of services that the county and the state and the hospitals could not provide because I because I don't think that's that's their niche, right? Mm-hmm. But we began to realize that's our niche. That's what the federally qualified health centers were created for. It's to reach out to the most vulnerable, uh, the underserved, the disadvantaged and to see how we can equalize the playing field by providing them with that same access to care, in this case, access to the vaccination. So the first group that we identified was Kau. We have a second Kau, and we decided to put everybody on our mobile unit and our patient shuttle, and we drove the staff out to Kau. We did some marketing, and we had the Kau area come to Na'alehu because we have a clinic there, and we vaccinated 160 kupuna. At that time, it was just... 75 and over, and that was incredible because that prevented all that kupuna from driving into Hilo, which is an hour drive. They got to wait in line. So, so that was our first outreach. Then the word got out, and people from Miloli'i started asking. Now that was a logistical challenge because they don't have any running water. You know, they basically get rainwater. That's an attachment tank. Uh, no electricity. They run on generators or solar panels. And so we had to replicate our Na'alehu Clinic, our Hilo Clinic in their village, uh, in a pavilion. So I'm very proud of my team, too, you know, thinking outside of the box. Um, we got generators, we electrical cords, laptops, gasoline, special Wi-Fi, tents, tables, chairs, you know, and basically replicating a clinic in a pavilion. We had to get everybody to buy in, and we made it happen. And since then, we've been getting... Calls to go into other rural areas, mostly the homesteads, uh, the Hawaiian homesteads. So we got a call from the Keokaha Community Association, Neva Community Association. We got uh, friends in Kalapana um, who have uh, asking us, you know, if we could replicate what we did in Na'alehu and Middle there. I mean, we, we've done so well in reaching out to the community in places that nobody else wanted to go. There's even a slogan now that people are saying they would go kind of in replication of, of the legendary Eddie Aikau, right? Eddie would go. Mm-hmm. So Bay would go, and I think the federal qualified health centers, it's our mission to go. So we're really seeing that health entities like the Bay Clinic really have a, have a niche in helping to bring the community's island to herd immunity, and that's our goal.
2: And that's a very doable goal, especially with this news, that the 14 Hawaii community health centers are receiving nearly $32 million from the American Rescue Plan. Uh, Bay Clinic was able to receive $3,635,250. So looking ahead, how are these funds going to help you guys?
1: Again, we're so blessed to be connected to the federal government in that way. It takes a lot to be a federally qualified health center. There's 14 of us statewide. Uh, there's a lot of compliance measures and, and requirements, but it is worth it. And and getting that funding from the federal government directly makes it worth it. So we would like to you know acknowledge Biden administration, we're putting the herd immunity date at July 4th. We believe that if we can continue to progress as we are with the funding that we've given, we can reach herd immunity kind of like by July 4th, like what I would say an independence, if you will, of the coronavirus. It's the perfect date for that. Uh, without the funds, it would be very difficult to mobilize. What the funds has allowed us to do is basically hire a COVID vaccination team all by itself. See, without the funds, we would have to use our, our current uh, providers and kind of set up the vaccination as we would an appointment. But we realize you cannot have an appointment and a vaccination at the same time because the vaccination is an appointment all by itself. You know, patients have to be monitored for any adverse reactions. So we cannot expect our doctors to set aside another day or weekend to make this happen. So the, these federal funds... 3.6 million, point six going to allow us for the next two years to keep our vaccination clinic up and running with staff members who are just dedicated to the vaccination and the COVID testing protocols. And this is just a blessing because without it, it would be super difficult. I would be afraid that our providers would, would reach burnout because it's, it's it's a heavy burden to carry to to, to be a provider and to be a uh, uh, to have a vaccination uh, operation. So, yeah, so th- these funds are just a total blessing, and we feel very uh, secure that the island of Hawaii, at least the east side where we, where we operate, will be protected uh, because of these funds, and not just now, but for the next two years. I do want to reemphasize that the federally qualified health centers, we have three on the island, Bay Clinic, Hamakoi Health Center, and then West White Community Health Center. We are obligated to serve the underserved. We do not turn away anybody regardless of their ability to pay, and that's what makes us different from every other health center. That's also why we're able to get these grants because the federal government knows that we take a loss when we serve patients without insurance and basically providing free service to the patient, and that's how we're able to get these reimbursements. So, again, a hats off to the government uh, for their funding and, you know, to the public, Utilize if, if you're next, if you live next to a federal qualified health center or a clinic, you know, and, and, and you're looking for a provider, that's a good place to go.
0: That was Chemo Alameda, CEO of Bay Clinic. It runs a COVID vaccination clinic Monday through Friday for scheduled appointments and walk ins, and it continues to do rural reach outs on Fridays and Saturdays. Bay Clinic provides the Moderna vaccine to everyone who meets the criteria, but the Department of Health has also allocated. The Johnson and Johnson vaccine to streamline the vaccination of isolated communities like Kau, Naalehu, and Miloli. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Unihoa,
3: olehua, unihau,
2: <laughs> ukawa, umuloka
0: for today's quiz we're getting ready for state tartan day in 2008 the state passed legislation designating April 6th of every year as state tartan day Hawaii is one of 24 states to have an official tartan Uh, tartan or brecon in Scottish Gaelic is traditional Scottish cloth with crisscross colorful patterns the dress act of 1746 banned the wearing of tartan kilts in Scotland except for those in the army when the act was repealed in 1782 the tartan kilt became the symbolic national dress of scotland today the tartan is an important symbol of scottish pride across the world and even here in the islands for today's quiz we want to know who designed our state tartan call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
4: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nayreed Hawaii. Which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide with support for nonprofits, including Haleo Hawaii on the island of Hawaii. Learn more at neireethawaii.com.
0: Vaccines may offer hope that certain aspects of life might return to normal, but researchers warn that mental health repercussions of the past year will be long-lasting. The U.S. Census Bureau documented a 31% increase in the number of people who reported symptoms of anxiety or depression from 2019 to 2020. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with O'ahu psychologist Cecily Sakai about how people are managing one type of anxiety hypochondria, or anxiety about health.
5: Hypochondriasis used to be a term used clinically, and now when we think about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, what we actually talk about these days is known as somatic symptom disorder or illness anxiety disorder. But basically, it's similar to what we would call hypochondriasis in the past, where Somatic symptom disorder is really when we experience things happening in our body. So we might have a headache, we might get a sore throat, we might have back pain, we might feel nauseous. So we experience these things somatically and we then believe there's something wrong with us because of those somatic complaints. Whereas the second disorder, illness, anxiety disorder is where there may not actually be somatic symptoms present, but a person might be really consumed with reading up about what does nausea in the body mean. Oh, that could mean I might have cancer of the liver. Or I might have some other medical condition. And so, again, there's not a somatic complaint, but there's an illness that the individual believes they have.
2: So particularly looking at that second class of diagnosis that you Mm -hmm. specified there, where people Mm -hmm. aren't responding Mm -hmm. to a symptom in their body, what would be a trigger for that kind of deep delve into this medical knowledge?
5: This pandemic could be a huge trigger for developing illness, anxiety disorder. So just believing that you have COVID because it is very widespread And this is where, you know, both could be true with either somatic symptom disorder or illness anxiety disorder. Illness anxiety, just believing that, okay, I was out at the store. I know we have high rates of COVID or I'm watching the news all the time. I'm hearing about it all the time. So it seems like it's very present and it may just be something that we become consumed by because, again, it's very much so in the news. It's in the paper. We're hearing about it all the time. So we may develop this idea that I must have COVID. And then again, in in the opposite sense, it might be, I went to the grocery store, I touched all these fruits to make sure I'm getting the one that I want. Two hours later, I'm at home, I wash my hands really well, but now I'm starting to feel a little tired and I have a little tickle in my throat. That must mean that I probably developed COVID when I was out at the store,
2: so I guess my question is then, because it's it's very difficult to avoid mm-hmm. all of these different stimuli that come from the pandemic. And people are encouraging us to be hyper-conscientious, to keep sure. ourselves and other people safe. I think everyone has probably had, at some point in this pandemic, a thought about their behavior and, and <laughs> question whether or not it was safe or if there could have been a concern of transmission there, at what point do those pinprints of anxiety start to look like something more serious, start to look like something that might need to be addressed?
5: Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think it's one that comes up a lot, um, you know, for clients that I have or just people in general wondering kind of, am I allowed (laughs) to worry about these things. Because again, this we are in a time of a pandemic, so these are very real issues and um, health concerns. Clinically, for some of these disorders, there are timelines like having to have symptoms for more than six months, thinking about it for the majority of the time, having it impact your functioning. Psychologically, we think about how much is this happening for a person and also are they able to continue on and function in their life? So maybe I do have a passing thought of, oh, shoot, did I develop COVID or Um, maybe, you know, I'm starting to get a worsening of symptoms overnight. I'm going to stay home from work. Maybe I should go and get a test if it's available for me. And again, I think in, in a lot of ways that falls within normal range. A lot of people have these anxieties. With the pandemic, it's really hard to differentiate. Am I developing health anxiety or am I not? When Um, there is a real threat present. And so, again, I think what we think about clinically is how is this impacting an individual's functioning? If someone is bordering more on um, having health anxiety, it's a real preoccupation throughout the day, not being able to rest, not being able to let up thoughts about, these symptoms, even when getting a negative COVID test, still believing that, well, there are false negatives out there. Maybe I need to go back three more times and get additional tests.
2: Have more people come forward during the pandemic, specifically seeking treatment for health anxiety?
5: Interestingly, I, I, you know, I can't speak for every hospital and every private practice out there, but I think either in my conversations with other clinicians or even just in my own practice, what I've noticed is an exacerbation of symptoms for people who previously have some sort of anxiety, but I have actually not seen an increase in people coming in being worried about getting covid When people may not have had health anxiety but are living with someone who might have health anxiety, there is um, more conversation or more preoccupation around these sorts of anxieties because I think it's just more present within the household. And so people who may not have had health anxiety start thinking about it more or are impacted by it more, having to clean the counters, having to having to make sure the groceries are washed really well or that everything is cooked. Kind of these sorts of preoccupations come up because they're actually living with someone who has extreme sorts of symptoms that um, fall, um, fall in line with health anxiety.
2: For those who had been managing health anxiety beforehand, I imagine that this state of the world can be crippling. The line is blurry right now in terms of what Uh derives from health anxiety and what is a needed level of caution. And as certain individuals navigate that boundary for themselves and and Uh try to maintain as long as they can through this pandemic, as people who love them, and you spoke a little already about how this can affect whole families, whole households. Uh As people who love them, what are things we can do to show compassion to what they might be going through?
5: It really is, like you said, crippling for people. And the least helpful thing to do is to try to convince someone or to fight with someone around really their experience and their feelings. And so I think that compassion piece has to do a lot with just hearing people, validating their experience, maybe not necessarily agreeing with them and still being able to say this is what I know and I know and but still validating and I know that's so hard for you.
0: That was Dr. Cecily Sakai speaking with the conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote about managing health anxiety during this pandemic. Lou Civil Beat checks in with parents of public school students on how the return to the classroom experience has been. Education reporter Suvon Lee joins us today. Good morning, Suvon. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, what are, what are the parents saying about this experience of uh, getting their kids back inside the classroom?
6: Well, the parents I spoke to love it. they've been waiting for this moment for a long time Uh, many parents I interviewed some of whose voices didn't quite make it into the story today were saying that their kids are just thriving in this back-to-school in-person environment it also frees them up to um, go to work if they have to or uh, maintain their own work schedules if they are working parents so from what we're learning about the fourth quarter reopening so far it's that it's um, it's putting families at ease with their own schedules and schools are trying to bring kids back safely. so the plan does differ
0: from place to place. Yes, and you know, we did talk with the school superintendent last week. She started visiting the campuses just to see how the return to the classroom has been. Uh, but it but not everybody's back in yet.
6: That's right. Um, so the the DOE is a you know a vast network of 250 schools overall, and elementary schools alone account for about hundred seventy four of those schools. So, The facility size varies, the enrollment size varies, and so not all schools can bring all kids back for face-to-face daily instruction. I think the the lucky ones can, uh, the ones that are creatively thinking how to do this can, but I was struck by how some schools even could bring back certain kids daily, but not others. For instance, uh, this one Kalihi school can't bring back its third graders for daily in-person instruction because that that grade level it just happens to have too many kids to bring them back so while the first second fourth fifth graders can come back daily the third graders cannot so it really does depend on what school you go to and um and i think you know i I could imagine some of those parents might be frustrated that their own kid
0: couldn't come back when their peers could yeah, you know, I, I know there, there was a time when I think there was one West Side school, oh gosh, it was August Aarons, I think they had like, you know, 11 first grade classes or something crazy like that. But yeah, in those communities where there are just a lot of children, um, it's just not going to work. And the CDC did kind of reduce the guidelines, right, from six feet to three feet. But um, Right,
6: right. Yeah, you know, that, that's that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the whole brewing um, issue this, this past school year was, is six feet of spacing enough space between desks? And, you know, we saw that play out in the fall, and in the spring, the CDC came out and said, actually, you can safely space kids apart three feet between desks as long as they're facing in the same direction, as long as they're wearing masks, and there's these other mitigation measures in place. But even some principals I spoke to about that level of spacing said that's not even adequate, or that's not, even with three feet of spacing they can't bring all their kids back in one classroom so that just goes to show you that you know these classroom configurations and sizes are all very different and some administrators some school administrators don't feel quite safe enough to uh, bring children back into the classroom even with three feet of spacing between desks
0: and the teachers Union the HSTA uh, you know was very vocal about the six feet distancing, you know, early on. And then, you know, there was a concern about uh, uh, the vaccines and, you know, folks who want them, you know, uh, have been able to get them. Right, I think that was a huge game changer—the uh, teacher
6: vaccinations. Um, Hawaii, to its credit, you know, put teachers front and center, prioritize them to get the vaccines early on. Um, there is no available data on exactly how many teachers are now vaccinated and how many have refused to get one. However, HSTA did say that you know a lot of teachers are vaccinated now. The superintendent herself, I believe, said on your own program last week that everyone who had wanted a vaccine, teachers, has gotten one. So, I mean, that was a huge, I, I think, development in terms of the HSTA not being opposed to bringing kids back more forcefully this quarter. Um, and so they've been pretty... Um, you know, they haven't really vo- voiced much opposition to this new plan. And they they indeed did tell me that there haven't been too many incidents in the weeks leading up to the fourth quarter as far as transmission or COVID transmission or too many cases on school campuses.
0: Yeah, and, you know, not everybody's back uh, 100%. And, you know, while they're trying to get kids in, it's already April, so the year's not much left of the year. Right. We're almost at the
6: end of the school year.
0: All right. can, can you believe it? Yeah. <laughs> I know it's kinda it's gone it's gone by fast. But thank you so much, Suvon. Sure thing, thank you. That was Reporter Suvon Lee with today's reality check. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org. This is the conversation on listener-supported Hawai'i Public Radio. HPR's Dave Lawrence and astronomer Christopher Phillips uh, tell us some exciting news about an airborne drone which is being deployed on Mars. Here's your Monday Stargazer. <laughs>
7: Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny, very troubled planet. And as always, we are thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and he's on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week?
3: Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Mars in the western sky after sunset. It will be visible till around 11 p.m. The moon will be passing through its new moon phase this week, and so conditions will be perfect for stargazing.
7: And I'm excited because you have an update, apparently, on what is really going to be a historic aspect to this latest Mars mission when they launch an an airborne drone up there on Mars. What's the story with that?
3: Well, now, safely on the surface of Mars, the NASA rover Perseverance has deployed the onboard helicopter drone named Ingenuity. This compact aerial drone is preparing to take its first flight sometime after April 11. This will be the first time ever that humanity has operated an aerial vehicle on another world. And the wonderful thing about this extraterrestrial first flight is that it will be captured on camera for all to see.
7: What takes it so long to finally get it up? I guess they got to unpack it, and that's probably an interesting process.
3: Yeah, and it's the unpacking that takes a long time because the drone is folded up like a high-tech piece of spacecraft origami. Hmm. And so to deploy it on the surface meant that the thing had to be unpacked very slowly to avoid any potential damage. Once deployed, flight conditions also have to be perfect, so that means avoiding the Martian weather, which can be a little bit windy at times. And talk a little bit about its first itinerary. (laughs) Well, it's set to take off from what NASA is calling the helipad. And then its flight plan will take it out over the Martian surface to a potential future landing site. It's going to check that out. And along the way, it will snap pictures and give us an idea of the lay of the land around the rover. And after this, it will return home to the helipad.
7: And will the rover, I'm assuming the rover's got quite a camera on board of its own.
3: Yes, it's got plenty. And so the drone will be monitored by Perseverance, and the entire operation will be caught on camera, and hopefully with some sound too.
7: Well, it's very exciting. We're looking forward to hearing all about it, and even cooler hopefully seeing uh, this thing taking off, like you said, a real big moment for uh, humanity, kind of like a Wright Brothers moment out in space, sort of, huh?
3: It is, and what is curious about this mission is the drone actually contains a small piece of the original Wright Brothers plane that it has taken to the Mars.
7: Wow, so the little aircraft, when it goes up into the air, is going to actually have a piece of their, their aircraft.
3: A piece of history on another planet.
7: That's so cool. Very, very cool. It's Christopher Phillips with a, uh, an outstanding Stargazer report this week, and fingers crossed this thing gains flight, and we'll be hearing about it on a future Stargazer with you. Thank
3: you. You're all welcome, Dave.
7: And look for Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for
4: Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com.
0: When you think of places connected to beer, you typically think of Germany, home of Oktoberfest, or St. Louis, Missouri, site of Anheuser-Busch's headquarters. Many don't realize that Hawaii has a long history with the beverage. A new book out today, Hawaii Beer, A History of Brewing in Paradise, tracks the timeline from the first beer brewed in the islands in 1778 all the way to the current day. It was written by Paul Kahn, who grew up on the windward side of Oahu and now owns a craft brewery in Pennsylvania. He took some time to trade memories and talk about his writing process with The Conversation's Russell Subiono.
8: What's the first beer you remember drinking, and what's your favorite beer now?
9: ah that's that's a great question yeah so the first beer i remember drinking was uh budweiser you know budweiser was sort of around when i was a kid in hawaii it was you know just part of the environment and so when i was old enough to drink and that was back in the day it was 18 years old was the legal drinking age Uh, gives you an idea of how old i am so um so yeah that that's really sort of the first beer i remember drinking and um, like my favorite beer now, that that's yeah, that's that's a tough one because you know I own a brewery, so I gotta say my own beer. I gotta, I gotta right. Go it's ADR. like it's
8: like your kids, right? <laughs> you can't say who your favorite kid is.
9: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's you know we make a really good uh, dark IPA. We call it Shy Ronnie the after
8: the the SNL character. You
9: know, I it, it's one of the owners has a friend who he brewed with. He did home brewing before. We really sort of got started into the the larger craft brewing where, you know, we have a brick and mortar place with a tap room. And uh, so he just, just kind of named the first beer out of the gate, Shirani uh, and it was this this dark IPA.
8: I remember my, my grandfather used to drink Budweiser a lot, too. I remember as a kid that mm-hmm. there, there was always Bud in the refrigerator. You know, I'm curious that... Mm. At what point in your life did you come to the conclusion that someone needed to tell Hawaii's story of its history with beer?
9: You know, that that actually occurred just kind of recently, I would say, with right around 2019. And it, it's kind of a bunch of events happened at once, and uh, I, I was waiting at a craft brewery for some friends, and they were running late, and my mind was sort of wandering. Um, and I had just finished a book about the, the history of beer in the United States. And nothing in that book touched on Hawaii. Hawaii wasn't included anywhere. I'm like, really? I mean, because, you know, we have Primo. I know there's the, the old building in Kaka'ako that's still standing. And then just by complete accident, there was some ad playing on the, the radio at, at the bar. And I don't even remember what the ad was for. But it was, of course, at the end, it said something like, offer not valid in Alaska and Hawaii which we always get, and it's always like, oh, really? You know, because you know what's valid? Our, our beer history. And it sort of hit me. You know, I wonder if anybody has written about Hawaii's beer history because we've got a story to tell. And so I did a little bit more digging. I found there was one smaller book that was written in, like, 2007. It was self-published, and I used that as kind of a jumping-off point. And then there's, like, a small journal article in an academic um, journal that I think it was about, like, nine pages, and I used that as kind of the jumping-off point and just began digging around and, and found a publisher.
8: Yeah, we always tend to get left out like that. I, I'm glad you yeah. you picked it up and you decided to write the book. So what what was your writing process like? Did you approach it like a novel or like a research paper, and was it important for you to do your research in person?
9: Um, yes, yes to all of that. So I did, a you know, I approached it a bit um you know not not academic-y because uh, i didn't want to write that book i wanted to write a book that was more inviting and approachable that was accessible to both the, the, the beer drinker and the person who's interested in hawaii or you know kama aina who didn't really know much about the beer history or sort of heard a bit about it kind of like me Ah, oh, yeah i kind of remember primo but well, you know what's the rest of the story so um, I have a, a friend who is a historian, and he always says, you know, what's the story? What, 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 that's really what good history is about, is there's some sort of story. Uh, and so that's how I approached this. I began to think about what what really are we trying to say about our beer history? And it began as, well, this is really about distance. You know, this is about geography. How did beer get to the most isolated landmass on the planet? Um it didn't happen by accident, you know. Beer doesn't just suddenly happen. People brew it and people drink it. So, so that's that's how I uh, approach that.
8: You know, s- speaking of Primo, your your book is full of tons of interesting historical facts about beer making in Hawaii. Like the aluminum can was an innovation yeah. from Primo Beer in 1958, and Kauai Island Brewing Company is the westernmost brewery brewery in the country my favorite little fact that i read was that the first beer brewed in hawaii wasn't made on land can you tell us a little bit more about that story
9: yeah so that the first beer that was recorded um in hawaii was actually brewed on uh, on a royal naval vessel uh, by captain james cook and this was just off the coast of the big island of hawaii uh, and really, the the Navy, this is kind of a medical experiment of a kind. the the royal navy was was battling scurvy, which is this sort of wasting disease that sailors get on long voyages if they don't get adequate nutrition. And so the Royal Navy had this this idea that, well, beer, beer can prevent scurvy. So let's try this out. Uh, and one of the early experimenters was Captain Cook. so, He's like all right well what do, I, what do I have here to make some beer so use sugarcane and hops to make this brew but apparently it was it was terrible not only was it terrible but it was making the crew like violently ill which of course is bad bad for their health so um, according to one of his lieutenants the crew sent a letter to Captain Cook saying this is this is kind of terrible and it's hurting our health and if you if you make us drink this beer, there there could be a problem, which Captain Cook took as a as a threat of mutiny. Uh, so he said, well, all right, um, everybody, let's assemble on the aft deck and, and discuss this. And by discussing it, he meant, I'm going to surround you with 20 heavily armed Marines, and I'm going to say, you're going to drink this beer because I'm going to cut your brandy rations and your food rations until you do it. So... You know, faced with that choice, uh, that's actually really when the first beer was made. It was made out of sugarcane and hops.
8: When you think about all the historical research that you did for the book, what fact surprised you the most?
9: You know, um, I, I have to say, other than, you know, finding out that the first beer in Hawaii was brewed offshore, um, or that the first beer brewed onshore was actually done by a Spaniard was one of King Kamehameha, the Great's advisors. That was kind of a surprise. So outside of those two things would be like the no kidding Germans from Germany who were brewers throughout Hawaii's history of beer. So a lot of breweries weren't owned by Germans, Americans mostly, but they brought in Germans. Uh, a lot of them from you know the mainland where they're working at Pabst or some other brewery on the mainland and, and enticed them to come over uh, so you get some, you know, great-sounding German names, you know, uh, Hartwig Harders or, um, you know, Walter Glickstein or Flickenstein. And even into the 1980s with, the, with, you know, the first craft brewery on Wailuka, you had Aloysius Klink. Uh, I mean, just some great German names who are no-fooling Germans from, from Germany. Walter Glockner would be another one who brewed for a royal brewery that was competing with Primo in the – in the early
0: 30s we're going to take a short break right now from our interview with paul Kahn, the author of hawaii beer a history of brewing in paradise but we'll be back with his thoughts on why heineken is so popular among locals and which brewery convinced nasa to harvest space yeast for a special beer
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ward Village, committed to creating community and developing opportunities for shops, restaurants, and businesses in Hawaii. Learn more at wardvillage.com.
2: Diabetes can be prevented, but once someone is diagnosed, it needs to be managed. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with local experts about how COVID has changed their diabetes research and how taking care of this condition is more important now than ever. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show.
4: Support for HPR comes from Honolulu Chamber Music Series. Midori performs violin sonatas by Grieg and Franck in a virtual concert, 2 p.m. this Saturday. Open to the community. Registration at honoluluchambermusicseries.org.
0: You are back with the conversation. Let's continue our interview with Paul Kahn, the author of Hawaii Beer, A History of Brewing in Paradise, a new book out today.
8: I grew up here, and I think most local people born in the '70s or earlier remember Primo being the beer. And I just missed. I grew up in an, in the era where Primo was being phased out, but I remember the Primo hats, and I remember yeah, you too. know, nook and hair get Primo in my ear, and a lot of things about Primo. But I don't. I don't ever remember seeing it on the shelves. Mm-hmm. And in your book, you write that Primo captured. 70% of the Hawaii market by 1969. But today, most locals would agree that Heineken is the local beer of mm-hmm. choice. And I've had this discussion with plenty of family members several times, but I'd like to know why you think that those green bottles are the most popular amongst locals.
9: You know, that that's a, that's a real phenomenon. We call it the green bottle phenomenon. And so I'm I'm a bit older than you are. So I yeah I remember the Primo hats are made out of yarn and the and the cans. I and mean, aluminum cans are those the hats you're talking about? Yeah, I'm talking yeah. about like the baseball
8: hat. The the cans the the can bucket <laughs> hats yeah.
9: Yeah, and they're kind of hard to find now. I mean even if you go on eBay you're like oh okay. But yeah they used to be like all around, and that's sort of one of my first memories of Primo wasn't the beer but it, I think we were at a, a parade. It might have been a Kamehameha parade with my dad and I was young and I remember seeing somebody wearing one of those those hats and I was like oh okay and then later on I found out it was about beer but yeah the green bottle phenomenon and and, and, and how did Heineken do it um, because Heineken a Dutch beer that is now owned by a huge conglomerate that owns so many other different types of beer I think they own like Stella artois and um, you know bass and, and all these other kind of popular imported beers um, but I, but what I think happened was that uh, Primo, of course, lost market share because they had moved their their brewing largely to California, and they began to kind of dehydrate things like the wort, W-O-R-T, and then send it back to Hawaii, and it was kind of rehydrated with Hawaiian water, and it kind of tasted awful.
1: Um,
9: and so this is right around the moment when you had a lot of, Mainland beers, Budweiser, Miller, Olympia, and so you could get those for about the same price, but the green bottle phenomenon, you had Heineken kind of like, hey, this is a little bit more, but it's premium, it tastes better, and Heineken has been really good at kind of taking advantage of that, so they, you know, they, they work with a lot of charities, UH, UH Sports, for example, so they're, they're marketing was was better in in many respects than than Primo.
8: It wasn't until I moved back home from the mainland that I realized that Heineken was everywhere. Even you know yeah. every time I go to my brother's house, that's all he has in the refrigerator. So it's it's been interesting to see how that shifted. Part three of your book is a collection of mm-hmm. interviews that you did with many local people in the Hawaii brewing mm-hmm. scene. Of all the interviews that you did, what's your most memorable?
9: Oh man, that that's hard uh, because they were you know the, the men and women who are involved in brewing in hawaii they were they were just interesting in and of themselves it, it's kind of hard to, to compare each one of them but w- one thing that that stood out about all of them as a as a collection was just the love of what they do and where they do it so even if they're not locals they're transplants and they become locals it was a real sense of pride in what they do and pride because of how they serve the community uh, where they are, that local for them is local as in neighborhood, local as in, you know, town. Uh, Sometimes it's local and, you know, in terms of island or who's investing like Ola, Ola brew company in Kona where they have so many individual investors. It's, you know, it's a great business model. Um, I, you know, I have to say I really enjoyed, talking to Maxon Davis, who was originally with Kona Brewing Company, and uh, talked a lot about the, the early days of getting Kona up and running in the 90s and the challenges with that because, you know, it's like Big Island. Why would you brew on the Big Island? Why, why wouldn't you brew in Honolulu where there was Primo, where there is a kind of a better infrastructure? Um, but just the early challenges, the, the building of, of the brand – um, and he has just a, you know, a great sense of humor. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we were on a car ride together because he had to go pick up some, pl- some supplies for one of his, his restaurants. Um, and so as, as a craft brewer myself in the business and our brewery just turned three, it was, it was kind of cool to hear, oh, yeah, here's a guy who, who really worked hard to do it. And, you know, what can I learn? Not just the history of what I want to put in the book, but as somebody whose, you know, side hustle is, is in brewing. So I, I really enjoyed that conversation. I have fond memories of that.
8: The, uh, when I, when I moved back from, from home from the mainland, Kona Brewing, I think Mm. had just, or at least when I was making trips back home, Kona Mm -hmm. Brewing was, was at its outset. So it was nice to see that there was some uh, local beer production going on. And from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, we can grow everything needed to brew beer here except for hops. Is that accurate?
9: Yeah, more, you know, more or less. You, you, we can probably grow hops in Hawaii, but, you know, it, it, it would be really difficult. It would be trying. Plus, you know, what kind of grain can we grow that um, would be sustainable in the long run uh, in the tropics where it, it's actually, you know, much easier and much cheaper in many respects to get those ingredients from, from overseas, um, you know, from across the Pacific. Uh, I know for example, like Hanakoa is, has experimented with some really good New Zealand hops and, um, you know, some really tasty beers from, from Hanakoa using those hops. So yeah, it's, it, it's really, it would be difficult to do that in a, in a large scale, given the climate, and how much care and nurturing you'd have to put into that.
8: Would be would be nice one day to be able to drink <laughs> a, a beer fully grown and brewed in Hawaii.
9: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the interesting thing about, say, Lani Kai Brewing Company on the Windward side, where I grew up, is uh, Steve, Steve Homschild, who runs that place, uh, uses local yeast. He's a yeast prospector, so he will find local yeast Somewhere, whether it's from a mango or he's even swabbed bellies of, of sharks for yeast and used them in brews. So that, I mean, that's pretty local. That's a local ingredient, <laughs> you know, just finding uh, these yeast strains that are within the, the environment of the islands.
8: Wow, that, out, out of the bellies of sharks?
9: Yeah, and he also managed to, and this is in, in my book, where he managed to convince NASA to, to find space yeast. So, um, you know, they were going up in 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 this experimental, not an experimental aircraft, but as an aircraft that they used to run experiments. And with, you know, no cost to the taxpayer, they, they used this particular flight to capture space yeast. Um, and so he wasn't, you know, really sure whether or not this yeast would be fermentable, whether you could use it to actually kick off the process for brewing. And uh, so he, he found some strains like, ah, oh, well, this is, this is new. So there was a whole process of okay, it will, not only will this be a fermentable yeast, but is this fit for human consumption? And this is an unknown one. He called it a UFO, um, an unidentified <laughs> fermentable object. <laughs> and uh, so I think they brewed a beer. I don't remember the name that commemorated the you know the anniversary of the of the moon landing.
8: Well, wow, I, I learned a lot reading your book, but uh, those are those are incredible things to to learn. Thanks so much for your yeah. time, Paul. Yeah, anytime. Thank you.
0: That was Paul Kahn talking with The Conversation's Russell Subiono. That new book, Hawaii Beer, A History of Brewing in Paradise, is out today. To learn more about it, check out the link on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. today's quiz we wanted to know who designed our state tartan well Douglas Herring adopted his mother's design back in 1997 for a tartan competition run by the Caledonian Society of Hawaii this design was adopted in 2008 as the state tartan and Douglas wove the original sample out of cotton on a hand loom and wanted each color he used to represent an aspect of Hawaii's landscape he chose a blue black black background to represent the sea and the sky Red, yellow, and brown to represent lava and the earth, and green to represent Hawaii's lush vegetation. A wool sample of the Hawaii tartan is registered with the Scottish Register of Tartans and will be preserved in the National Archives of Scotland. You can see a photo of the Hawaii State Tartan on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. And our winner today, India Page of Waikaloa. She apparently is a Scot, fascinated by Scottish history in Hawaii, and she knew the answer. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And that's a wrap for today. Tomorrow, we'll explore how the child care industry is doing. Parents, are you able to balance work life during a pandemic along with how to keep your kiki safe? We'd love to hear from moms and dads. Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. I'm Catherine Ruse. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.